0: am obeying and waiting on the Lord in one of the toughest tests of faith that we've ever seen in Scripture. We're also going to see that we are not required to continue to bang our head against the wall. There are some people that I love dearly and I want to, and some of them I even have, said, why do you continue to bang against your head against the wall when you know that it's just going to hurt like every other time that you've banged your head against the wall? Well, Abraham, Um, he's now Abraham by the time we get to this passage, he was Abram back in chapter 16. He's wised up a little bit when it comes to banging his head against the wall. I I don't want to make it sound as if he's, he's arrived, but he's kind of at the place where my kids were at when they were coming of age. Remember when, if you had children, when they got to the age where when you'd take their nose and, and, and they would freak out and they finally figured that it was just your thumb, and, and they're not really bugging out about you taking their nose anymore. That's sort of the place where Abraham is at. He's like, I'm not falling for the, hit of, for the stolen nose trick anymore. And I wouldn't say that my kids had Yoda wisdom at that point in their lives just because they're not falling for this anymore, you know. But he's wising up a little bit and learning that you don't have to fall for the same things that you used to when you were younger and abraham's starting to get that point we've seen multiple times where abraham is just trying to manipulate the situation in order to orchestrate god's blessing in their lives and he is about to be tested again but instead of banging his head against the wall or taking matters into his own hands he's just going to understand or at least starting to understand That God is trustworthy even in the times where it is most difficult to trust. That's kind of the thesis of this passage. And we're going to see a powerful lesson on how God can use you even if you've really, really blown it in the past. Remember, by this point in Genesis, cowardly Abraham already tried to sell Sarai into prostitution twice. Oh, we see the whole mess with Hagar and with Ishmael that took place last week. Yet here we are, and God still has massive plans for this knucklehead, which is really, really cool when you think about it. I mean, it's, it's pretty encouraging when you think about it, isn't it? If one of the most powerful moments in the life of a believer, and if you've not been there yet, I encourage you to just think about it this aspect of God's grace. It is one of the most powerful moments in the life of a believer when you begin to understand that God does not give up on you in spite of how many times you mess up and in spite of how many imperfections you have. And the moment that that sinks in is the moment that you begin to understand grace for the first time beyond it being a merely theological construct but understanding grace on an experiential level. If Abraham was just crushing it, All the time. And everything he did, he was just responding to this amazing faithfulness, like it's sometimes mistakenly taught. Well, then, this movement of God that we see here in this text would not be nearly as profound as what we're going to see. It's because God uses a dude that continues to blow it over and over and over that this story stands out as a portrait of God's grace and an encouragement to all of those who are aware of their need for God's grace. But all of those things, man, I just named off like five big things. They're seen really clearly in this text, and none of them are even the main point of the text, which is crazy. Any one of those things could be a sermon on its own, but when you get into the meat of the text, you see something much bigger going on, and you'll be able to see why this is one of the most significant chapters in all of Scripture. We're going to see some things about Abraham in this text, But even more, we're going to see God beginning to pull back the curtain a little bit and letting people who are living some 2,000 years before the birth of Christ, and God begins to reveal awesome things about this seed of the woman, who it's going to be, and show through this story of Abraham and Isaac that God is really talking about the far greater one who is to come. And we're going to see some really amazing truths about the heart of God. Um, This is a massively important text. And to be honest with you, um, it's been a long time since I've been so nervous putting together a message because this there's so much content. So please bear with me if I uh, have a hard time conveying it. But I pray that I won't. And I pray that we will all fall deeper in love with the God who put love on the altar. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, So this passage begins with God testing Abraham. Look at the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 22. It says, and after these things, God tested Abraham. So it starts off with a question that you should be asking as you're reading this test. Why would God test Abraham? Is this unique to Abraham? Does God test us like he tests Abraham? And and to answer that question, like, does God test us the way he tests Abraham? It's kind of yes, and it's kind of no, almost equally. So let's look at a couple of scriptures on being tested by the Lord. I have a few slides on some First uh, James 1, 2, and 3, a very famous one. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for we know That the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So, this is a testing that has a purpose to produce a steadfast faith. Later on in James chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast in their trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed away by his own desire. And this one is saying that we are tested, but not tempted. That temptation results from our own lusts. How about 1 Peter 1, 6, and 7? In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though now it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and the glory and honor of the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this is getting a tested faith where it just strips away everything that is not Jesus in order to produce something precious or later on in 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 12 and 13 beloved do not be surprised at the fire trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange was happening to you but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So this one is saying it's an encouragement not to be discouraged or be surprised when times of testing come up. And if we share in Christ's sufferings, the point it's making is we also share in Christ's glory. Or a couple of Old Testament ones, Proverbs 17.3, the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and the Lord tests the heart. So this is clearly saying God tests the heart hearts. But the tools that he uses to test the heart are likened to tools that burn away the imperfections in metals and carry away the dross to give a more purified and precious metal that results. Or how about Psalm 11.5? The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. That's the same psalm that starts off with, if the foundations are destroyed. What can the righteous do? And he's saying he's testing the foundations of the righteous here. So in some way, that test is his proof of ownership, showing that we are truly his children who have been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. And then one more, Deuteronomy 8:2. and you shall remember holy, the, the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he may... Humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So, this is testing us to make sure that we remain humble and dependent on Jesus. And there are a few more references if you were to do a study on the different times that testing is used in Scripture. Most of them are in the poetic books, and most of the times where it's used, it makes reference like the verse that I read from Proverbs 17. It's talking about um, poetic language that references the burning away of dross from silver and gold to produce something that is refined and altogether more precious. There are a lot of verses that talk about God allowing various trials into our life to produce His work within us. If you were to do a test, uh, a study on testing in Scripture, you would also see things like God sending trials to conform us. And then we have texts like God allowing tests, like in Job, where we see God allows Job to be tested. But most verses about God testing can kind of be summed up into two macro categories. One, God bringing about testing in in order to develop Christ-likeness in our character and to burn away anything that does not look like Jesus. Or two, God passively allowing testing rather than authoring the testing per se. And again, for the purposes of burning away that that does not reflect Jesus and to develop a steadfast love for God. So if you are here and you are in an hour of testing May I say to you, as difficult as it is to say, and maybe even more difficult to hear, rejoice. Each of these scriptures that I read, there is something that is a promise of God about God that God is doing that is attached to these testings. So if you are in an hour of testing, it is God not wasting any of it, but using it to conform you into the image of his son. A couple things about God's testing. God's testing is never capricious. God's testing is never vindictive. I mean, think about it. Every single time testing is mentioned in the scriptures that I brought up, those tests are directly mentioned to some sort of fruit that God is producing that comes along with that testing. And that shows us that his testing is never haphazard with all of the analogies between testing and craftsmanship, it seems as if his testing is uniquely crafted to the person who is being tested. That's a neat thought to think through. You might not like the testing, That you might be going through right now. But if he is going to call himself a craftsman over and over and over when he brings up the concept of testing, a craftsman doesn't just produce mass-produced junk. That's the difference between a craftsman and, I don't know, a junkman. Um, So God is hand-crafting that testing for you who is handcrafted so that he might continue to conform you into the image of his son i could keep going and that's why i said at the onset that this is a really hard text to preach because you could do a whole sermon on just the first part of verse one that god tested abraham and walk away with all kinds of good stuff Remember when I asked if God's testing of us is like God's testing of Abraham? And I said yes and no. So here's what I mean by that. It's similar in that God had a specific purpose. All the things that I read with regard to how God tests us is true and how God tests Abraham. All the things that I said are true of God's character are also true of God's character in his testing of Abraham. And what I said about God's testing to bring about us specific results within our heart of the person being tested is also true of God's testing of Abraham. But the no part, why it is unique and why it's so specific, we are told that God is testing the hearts of man in Scripture. We even read about the hour of testing of the church of Philadelphia in Revelation chapter three for a church. But this is the most specific reference to testing in the entire Bible. It clearly says God has singled out Abraham and God is testing Abraham. So why? Why is God testing Abraham? I don't want to sound like a broken record, but God is consistent with his character and he is always unchanging. The same reason that God tests the hearts of man generally is the same reason why he is testing Abraham specifically. And we also have the benefit of context to help us peel back the curtain a little bit and to give us a little bit of understanding of what it is that God is producing in Abraham's life. So based on what we've seen throughout Abraham, throughout Genesis, why is God specifically and uniquely testing Abraham? So let's remember, when God tests us, It's always to burn away that which does not look like Jesus and to conform us into the image of his son. And we see that Abraham up to this point has a really difficult time trusting God's promises. He knows that Sarah is going to be the mother of the nations, but he puts her into harm's way three different times. Twice out of fear and once by taking the matters of God's promise into his own hands and then poorly leading his wife into the direction of doing the same. We see Abraham specifically struggling with faith with regard to the seed promise and how that resulted in the whole mess that we saw last week in Genesis 16 with Hagar and Ishmael. We see that it begins to occupy this place of idolatry in his heart. Or in the very least, it occupied a place of fear that undermined his ability to be able to trust in the faithfulness of God to keep God's covenant promises. And by the way, man, Abraham really starts to goof this up when he becomes under the faulty impression that maybe God is just slow. So I just need to nudge him. And I just need to help him. And maybe it's really up to me to help God fulfill his promises. And I just want to share with you that is a really dangerous place to be. If you find yourself in that place and I I get to connect with a lot of pastors and I talk to them a lot of times when I'm brought in because of the position that I have in our network, I'm brought into a church that is struggling and I meet a pastor that is exhausted and burned out and they're telling you all the stuff that they are trying to do to build their church even though it says in scripture that only one person will build this church and that's Jesus and he says I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it but you see this person struggling and burnt out and restless because they are devoting their time and energy to do something that God never called them to do and said that he was the only one that was big enough to do so if you're in that spot I would recommend go read Psalm 50 and I promise you you won't be in that spot afterwards that's the Psalm where he says these outrageous things like if I was hungry I wouldn't tell you if I needed something, I wouldn't, you le- I wouldn't let you in on it. What do you have that I didn't give you? What do you have that I didn't create? What are you going to give me that I didn't give you first? And then you start to see, oh, yeah. So it is kind of silly for me to burn out thinking that I'm going to give you something that's going to make you greater. Or read Isaiah 66 when he says, where are you going to build a house for me? I don't need a house. The whole earth is the place that I kick my feet up. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. He's not looking for the people that are killing it out there. He's looking for the people that are on their knees Humble and contrite, or just meditate on the words of Christ, I will build my church, and realize that you are not the I in that sentence. If you diagram that sentence to try to see who the subject of it was, I promise you that no good diagramming would result with you being the subject of that sentence. Whether you diagram it in Greek, English, I don't care what language, Christ will build his church. It's not about us. And what Abraham is getting is God testing Abraham so that he can begin to have this silly notion that it is about us burned away. But as we move along, unlike previous times where God is seeking to engage the heart of man, Abraham doesn't go diving in the bushes, but instead he says, here I am. Look with me at the rest of verse one. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, "Abram." I would love to, I love the exclamation point there. Like when I say something with an exclamation point, I know what it sounds like, but I would love to hear God say something with an exclamation Abraham! <laughs> or maybe it's not like that, but I imagine he was getting his attention and Abraham snaps to attention and he says, here I am. It's significant. Where else have we seen so far up, into this point in Genesis where God calls out directly to one of his children. Again, man, I know I'm going broken record on this, but that's why when I preached to Genesis 3, I told you that it's probably the most significant chapter in the entire Bible leading up to the cross in the New Testament, where he says to Adam, where are you? And specifically calls out to his child, and Adam responds by diving in the bushes. But we begin to see something different happening here. God calls out to Abraham, echoing back to Genesis chapter 3. But Abraham does not go diving in the bushes. Abraham answers his Lord and says, here I am, Lord. Kind of reminds us of another passage where God burns away the dross of one of his people, doesn't it? It's the exact same language that you see in Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah has this divine vision before the courtroom, the throne room of God. And he sees him majestic and lifted up into his temple. And God says, who will go for us? And what does he say? Here am I, send me. And then God touches his lips with a coal from the altar. And he's undone in the presence of the Lord. And this is a really beautiful response you see from Abraham. He does not respond like the first Adam He does not respond when God calls to him like his first son, Cain. When he says, Cain, hey, what's going on? Where's Abel at? And he gives a snarky answer. Am I my brother's keeper? No, there's none of that going on. And that's because the whole passage is pointing not to the first Adam, but to the obedience of the second Adam. Both Abraham and his son Isaac's response point us to the father and the second Adam who did not let the cup pass from him in the garden of Gethsemane when he prayed, if there be any other way, let this cup be passed from me. But nevertheless, your will be done in essence saying, here I am, Lord, to do your will. Do with me as you please. And then we see what the test is about. Check out verse two. It says, and he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains in which I tell you. And God is calling Abraham to take his son, his only son, Isaac, whom he loves, and to sacrifice him as a burnt offering to the Lord. And this is deep, man. Like just the very nature of what's going on here should just explode your mind with questions if you understand how deep this is. I was just talking with Frank Savannah before in the bathroom because that's where my most theological conversations happen. Just say, dad to dad, man, can you imagine being put in this spot? Like, think about this. This is deep stuff. And we were both saying, like, yeah, I've said no to the Lord over much lesser things to this. This is really deep. Philosophers have devoted their whole lives to studying this verse right here. As a matter of fact, the hardest book that I've ever read Fear and Trembling by Soren Kierkegaard was written by about just this verse. And as, I hated this book so much that if anybody wants it, um, it's yours after the service because I will never read it again. It's deep. It's deep. It's so deep that when I had to read that text for a seminary textbook, I was like, I, I can't understand this. This is over my head. And we're never supposed to question God, but it's very natural to at least ask questions. God, out of all the things you could have done, why did you use this to test Abraham? There's so many things that appear wrong with this test on the surface. First off, child sacrifice is expressively forbidden by God. God is calling the Israelites into the land of Canaan at the time that they're receiving this book, where child sacrifice was done on the regular amongst all of the pagan nations that were living in there that Joshua was called to drive out from the land, and God goes through great lengths later in the Pentateuch as you read through the law to describe what an abomination the sacrifice of a child is and to show us how he is altogether different from these awful and profane gods of the Canaanites. And plus, you add another layer to this. This is the child of promise. We know that God is not going to do a switcheroo like he does multiple times in Genesis. You think Esau's the child of promise? Whoop! It was really Jacob. You think that it was whoop Whoop! It was really Seth. He's not going to do that here because the language is just so crystal clear in the Hebrew here in the text. God does not just refer to him as Abraham's son, but he calls him his only son, which is fascinating on so many levels. First of all, because of the whole Ishmael thing that we looked at last week, but secondly, because this wording foreshadows the same wording that is used in perhaps the most famous passage in the entire Bible, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believed in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. So again, I ask you by faith to try to peel away your minds from knowing this passage with the benefit of thousands of years of church history and put yourself in the shoes of the original hearers receiving this text. They would have been on the edge of their seats for this one. Wait, you said there was going to be this seed that was going to come and was going to undo the evil that was done in the garden and was going to crush the head of the serpent and now the seed's finally here. And you're going to do what? I mean, they would have been astounded by this. Remember, they likely received all five books that we know as the law together as one whole scroll as they were entering the land of Canaan. And they didn't have the benefit of knowing all that we know about this story as New Testament Christians. So they would have struggled with this, the whole entire story. And I would argue that if you're sitting here today, you should be struggling with this to some degree. If we don't struggle with this, I'm not saying struggle with wondering if it's inspired or wondering if it should be in your Bible or wondering if God is good. But if we don't struggle with this, if we don't see this as difficult, I wonder if we have ever really pondered just how scandalous the gospel truly is. How could God call this man to do something as barbaric as sacrifice his only son? And then the gravity sinks in, doesn't it, when you ask that question? And we're forced to ask God, how could you allow something so barbaric as the sacrifice, your only son. And then the question quickly turns into, God, why would you allow something like that and do it for me, of all people? And God, as I read the anguish here that Abraham is going through, I couldn't even imagine the anguish of my father's heart as you squished your son to save a rebel like me and make me your own. And then it begins to flood our hearts with God. How could you love me so deeply? This is too much to bear. That's what happens when you allow the scandalous nature of the passage to really sink in and inform your view of God and how big his gospel truly is. But I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. And like I said, that's why the passage is so challenging because we all know where this is going, what it's pointing to. And I want to get to Jesus, but... I want to do justice to the passage first. So let's see how they respond to the test. So I have these up behind me for any note takers. The way that they respond to the test first, and truly astonishingly, Abraham obeys this incredibly direct calling. Look at verses 3 and 4. It says... So Abram rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place that God had told him. And on third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. I've always been amazed and captivated by those words that God, uh, that Abraham rose early in the morning. I mean, to be called to do this To wrestle and then to obey it instantaneously would have been difficult enough. But imagine trying to go to bed that night. That's why I tell you guys. Use your imaginations when you read the Bible. Imagine trying to lay your head on a rock or whatever they used for pillows back then and thinking like, "This, this is my morning when I wake up. You wouldn't get a wink of sleep, would you? I have lost sleep over far, far less. And I would bet that you have, and then rising early, and then having to cut the wood that is going to be used for the offering of your precious son. I mean, imagine what must have been going through his mind each time he swings that axe, knowing I'm going to put my son on this wood, and he is going to be slaughtered before me. Secondly, Abraham knows that no one can help him, and that he and he alone has to do it. Look at the first part of verse five. It says, then Abram said to the young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the boy will go over there and worship and will come again to you. So no one's able to carry this cross for Abraham. He's saying, you guys have to stay and we're gonna go do business with the Lord. Third, Abraham seemed to have faith that even though he was called to sacrifice his son, that his son would somehow return again. Look at the end of that verse I just read. I and the boy will go and worship and then come back to you. He doesn't say one of us is going to be coming back to you and you're going to have a whole lot of questions when it comes back. He's saying we're going to come back to you and immediately that echoes the scripture that we read during the worship set in Hebrews chapter 11 verses 17 through 19 where he says, and by faith... Abraham when he was tested offered up Isaac and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son of whom it was said through Isaac shall your offspring be named and he considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead from which figuratively speaking he did receive him back man, this is cool stuff. I love that the writer of Hebrews gives us a little bit more insight into what's happening here and actually adds another layer to a story that already has so many layers in Scripture. Fourth, Abraham seemed to understand that God was going to somehow rescue his son. And even though he understood that, he still went forth with a sacrifice just as commanded this isn't one of those silly arguments like when people say, hey, if everybody is really ordained uh, for salvation before the end of the before the foundation of the world, why bother evangelizing? He doesn't do one of those goofy kind of mental chess masters. He doesn't say, if God's really just going to end up raising him, so why bother even sacrificing? Let's just cut out the middleman and not do this. Nope. Verse 6 shows very much that he obeyed, even though he had this faith that God was going to do something. It says, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it, On Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went both of them together. Fifth, Abraham, who used to question God regarding his son, is now having to answer an agonizing question from his son. Look at verses seven and eight. It says, And Isaac said to his father, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb? For the burnt offering, and Abraham said, "God will provide Himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son." So they both went up, both of them together. As much as I tell you guys to use your imaginations, this is the one where I just can't. Like I, I can't. I, it like makes my stomach churn to really try to imagine. I don't mean this to be hyperbole, but this is where the story breaks down as far as me trying to imagine putting myself. I can't imagine the anguish when his boy looked him in the eyes and said, what are we doing, Dad? What's going on here? Where's the offering? And he had to give his son an answer. Sixth, Abraham actually puts his son on the altar. Look at verse 9. It says, when they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order to, and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. If there was ever a passage that I wish that that there was more info on, this is probably the one. I mean, surely Isaac must have struggled at some point, right? But there's no signs of struggle. If, If you want to do something neat after this passage, just go home and when you're playing around your computers, just Google Renaissance paintings of the binding of Isaac. And you have the imaginations of the painters, some feeling as if he didn't struggle at all some you see that there's signs of this struggle but surely Abraham's hands must have been quivering as he is taking the rope and binding his son but nevertheless Abraham now literally does what he had been up to this point figuratively unable to do which is placing Isaac on the altar seventh Abraham raises the knife to slaughter his son look at verse 10 it says, then Abraham reached out his son and took out the knife to slaughter his son. So he was doing this. He was going forward with what the Lord called him. Eighth, Abraham demonstrated his love for God by not withholding his only son. Look at verses 11 and 12. Here's where we really start to see, wow, there's something, there's something bigger going on here. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, yeah, here I am. That's the way I picture him saying anyway. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withhold your son, your only son, from me. Ninth, Abraham offers up a substitutionary penal sacrifice in the place of his son. In verse 13, they see the ram Caught in the thicket, and they say, Well, we're going to make an offering, and there's going to be a sacrifice for the one who should have been offered. More on that in a moment. And tenth, and finally, Abraham finally realized that it wasn't up to him and that the Lord had provided. Look at verse 14. It says, So Abram called the name of the place, The Lord will provide. And it said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be. Provided. So God had to take the thing from Abraham that Abraham desired the most to see if God was the thing that Abraham desired the most. That's what God meant in verse 12. He's saying, Up to this point, You've obeyed me multiple times. Abraham believed God. He left from the Ur of the Chaldees. But here we see that he desired more than anything that he desired in the world. We see that Abraham desired God even more than he desired God's blessing. And that's really what it comes down to, folks. Isaac was his son, but Isaac was more than that. He was a picture of the promised blessing that was given to him in chapter 12, 1 through 3, and chapter 15, 1 through 6. It was a picture of God's faithfulness and all of those blessings were supposed to come through Isaac. So therefore, the conclusion can be reached. If there's no Isaac, there's no blessing. But Abraham demonstrates, I'm not in it for the blessing anymore, Lord. I'm after God. I'm after God himself. God himself is the treasure. And to prove that, Abraham puts what he loves most on the altar. Again, up to this point, Abraham left his home to follow God. Abraham had gone to battle against the pagan kings in chapter 14. Abraham had interceded on behalf of the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah, but there was always something that Abraham was holding back and not giving over to the Lord. You see the fear when he entered the pagan cities with Sarai. You see it in the way that he takes matters into his own hands with the seed blessing. There was part of Abraham's heart That Abraham tried to hold back for Abraham. And God's calling him saying, I'm going to take that final piece of your heart. I'm going to show you myself. It's time to let it go. I'm going to take that part that you've been holding back and call you to put it on the altar. And God's response is precious. Now I know that you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, from me. I want to ask you just a practical question before I give you some neat things in closing. Have you ever been to the place where God called you to place the thing that you love most dearly on the altar? I'm I'm speaking from my own experience, but these have been the deepest moments of my sanctification. I I remember when I first got saved, uh, I had this calling where God called me to um, what some would refer to as secular music, to take it and lay it all on the altar, my whole life was based around music. I, I lived following bands around the country. I literally dropped off the grid. When you hear people talk about being off the grid, I was off the grid living in a nomadic commune of hippies who literally just followed from one state to another. And ironically, I I was able to take things that were far more addictive and things that presented more immediate dangers. And when God saved me, placed those on the altar with relative ease. But this one was rattling to me. And I took it, and I laid it on the altar, and I threw out a bunch of good music in the process. And there was a beautiful moment when God gave it back. And he was like, you can enjoy this, but you can enjoy it responsibly now. This isn't going to be an idol for you anymore. And I would have missed the beauty of that precious season with Christ if I had never laid it on the altar. And some garbage man ended up getting a dope music collection but have you ever been in a spot where the Lord is encouraging you to just lay something down yet you keep clutching to it saying just not that one thing I refuse to let it go I can't encourage you strongly enough lay it on the altar and let it go let it go I don't remember the rest of the words I was about to get sing-songy with you all, but walk in the beauty of not having an area that prevents you from being able to walk in just full obedience to Jesus Christ. But on to the most important part of our text as we close. As we go through the story, it becomes really clear that the big idea of this story is not Abraham putting Isaac on the altar or what we do for God by putting something on the altar, but what God was willing to put on the altar for us and this point is pretty clear it has a near fulfillment like i had talked about a couple of weeks ago and a far fulfillment so i'm just going to use the points i made about abraham to show you that each of these points was true of christ and the father so first this whole thing points to jesus who obeyed a far more difficult calling and just like abraham had a slow agonizing day When he woke up, knowing what he was going to have to face, we see Jesus going to dark Gethsemane, knowing what the Lord is requiring him. Secondly, like Abraham, Jesus knew that no one can help him with this, and he alone had to accomplish it. No one was able to carry the cross for Abraham. Jesus had to carry the cross on our behalf. Third, just like Abraham had faith that he would receive back his son by resurrection, Jesus knew that not only was he the only one that could lay down his life, but that he could take it back up again. Fourth, just as Abraham, the main painful decision to continue even in the face of agony, Jesus endured the cross and did not allow the cup to pass from him fifth just as abraham who used to question god regarding his son is now having to answer the agonizing question of his son our heavenly father had to turn his face away as his son asked questions in agony my god my god why have you forsaken me sixth like abraham put his son on the altar god the father put his sinless son on the altar on our behalf Seventh, like Abraham raised the knife to slaughter his son, only the father could allow his son to be crushed on our behalf. Eighth, just like Abraham demonstrated his love for us, uh, for God by not withholding his only son, God demonstrated his, his love for us and demonstrated what love is according to 1 John chapter 4 by not withholding his one and only son. Ninth, though Abraham offered up a a substitutionary sacrifice in place of his son, God the Father offered up his son to be the substitutionary sacrifice on behalf of you and me and 10th, and finally, just as Abraham finally realized that it wasn't up to him and that the Lord provided, we now come to the cross knowing that we were not capable and it was not up to us, but we live lives of gratitude because our Lord has provided. So these things are true of you and for you today because God put love on the altar Because God put love in the altar, just like he said to Abraham, now I know that you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son Isaac from me. We can turn to God and say, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your most treasured possession, your son, your only son from me. Because God put Christ on the altar, we now have the freedom to put those things on the altar that keep us from Christ. And let me close with a scripture from the Apostle Paul. And Terry, your tears as you read this shook me up knowing that this is where I was going to end. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind and the testing you may discern what the will of God is and what is good and acceptable and perfect because God put his son on the altar. Because Christ became our living sacrifice, you are now free to live a life on the altar and to offer yourself up as a living sacrifice, no longer taking matters into your own hands and being conformed to this world, but a life on the altar is continually transformed by the renewing of a mind that is set on Christ. And now we're going to renew our minds by setting it on the altar of Christ as we come to take communion. So I'm going to ask if the communion servers would come forward. And we are going to take this meal as a declaration of, now I know that you love me. For you did not withhold your son, your only son from me, that I might have eternal life. And as I was thinking through what the share for communion, I was thinking... Of Nancy McKay who comes in and prepares these communion elements week in and week out and then I was thinking back to verses 3 through 5 in this passage where Abraham was taking the implements of the sacrifice and preparing them to take his son. Up onto the mountain. I was just thinking of the blessed ministry that she has that each week she breaks those crackers representing the body of Christ broken for you. And she takes a big thing of juice and pours it into those individual cups for you so that you could be able to remember the blood of Christ that was poured out for the remission of your sins. And we take this in faith and in gratitude for God did not withhold his son, his only son, from us. Let me pray and then I offer you to come up. Jesus, thank you you love us so much that you withheld nothing. You offered us life and life in the fullest. We take this meal with joy and gladness, with gratitude and solemnity all at the same time. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Come as the Lord leads.